I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a lot to learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is. It's a podcast that people listen to podcasts whenever they might listen to podcasts. Perhaps you are eating breakfast in a Victorian nook. Did the Victorians have nooks? I don't know. I think they did. I think they did. They probably did. Victorians were very nooky. Today is going to be really exciting because this touches a little close to my home. We are with Dr. Suzanne Kennedy-Stoskopf. Got it. Nailed it. You did. Um, the, uh, the doctor of the NC State College of Veterinary Medicine, and you specialize in wildlife and large wildlife animals and rehabilitation and the whole gamut of... Not your typical veterinarian. Welcome. I'm glad to be here and, and really excited. I can't wait to see what you're going to ask me. Well, let's first start with the same one. Hey, can you take a look at my dog? No. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, you prefer Dr. K.S., right? Because the, uh, the, the Kennedy Stoskopf could get a little cumbersome. Yes, the students call, call me Dr. K.S. Dr. K.S., can you take a look at my dog? And the answer is no. no. Why is that? Um, I am specialized. I am boarded in zoological medicine, so I'm trained to treat everything really but domestic animals. So my expertise is very broad, but some would say shallow. Whereas, broad but shallow. But we're somebody that does dogs... They really, really know dogs. Narrow and deep. Deep, yes. Yeah. And so, yes, I can answer casual questions about your dog, but I don't consider that I'm the best source of information for your dog compared to a primary care veterinarian that right. sees dogs every day, or if you have a dog with a serious problem, somebody who's boarded in internal medicine or cardiology or ophthalmology or neurology, depending upon what the system right, is. Right, right. Yeah. It- and that's a really interesting thing to bring up because uh, veterinary medicine is just as deep and broad as human medicine because there are animal veterinary cardiologists and stuff like that. And you just say, oh, veterinarian. You just do veterinarian. Um, <laughs> right? Right. These right. are some of the myths. I like dispelling myths, and this is a big myth I'd like to dispel that, you know, if your dog does have a heart, heart problem, or even worse, if an elephant has a heart problem, <laughs> there is a... Is there an elephant cardiologist out there? Uh, there is not an elephant cardiologist. But there's that definitely I know. a large zoological yes, cardiologist out there. There is a big, well, I should say there's probably in this country maybe a little over 100,000 veterinarians. So when you compare that to how many physicians there are, right. we're still very small. When I graduated from school, all the veterinarians in the country could fit in a football stadium, yeah. a large football stadium. Uh, um, perhaps NC State's football stadium. Yes, they would definitely have put, <laughs> they would have fit in, in NC State's football stadium. Yeah. And, and I think we've outgrown the football stadiums a little bit, 
He oh. might he might fit in Michigan right now. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> they, they could get like 110 in there. Uh, we, we, we might. Uh, and still most of those people are what I, I call primary care. They're the frontline veterinarians that take care of your pets. Yep. And those pets could be dogs, cats. It might be a gerbil or a rabbit. Or it could be a horse. People look at horses now as more like companion animals. Right. Well, horses are incredibly intelligent. One of my friends is a horse uh, a horse cart driver, and he's like, you don't get how crazy intelligent horses are. <laughs> um, but so you can't look at your dog. But this morning, you were dealing with other canids, weren't you? Right. So you can look at dogs. You just don't want to. Is that what we're getting at, Dr. KS? Yes, that is absolutely <laughs> correct. I mean, I guess the typical doctor, like, hey, uh, oh, you're a doctor, a, a, a human doctor, a physician. Let's mm-hmm. use that terminology, right? right. Mm-hmm. You're a physician. Hey, can you take a look at this thing? I don't do that. Right. They might very well do that. They just don't want to take a look at this thing. Right. You know? Right. No, you know, I work with red wolves. I work with coyotes. And... um they're really close to dogs, yeah. and I bring in specialists to help me with them. And of course, because it's a wolf or a coyote, they're kind of leery or scared. Mm-hmm. And I say, once I have it anesthetized, it's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what the uh, that's what you introduce the the general the general veterinarian to. You're like, hey, once I knock it out. It's still a dog yeah. to you medically. Right. Yeah. And, and because I work very closely with a, an ophthalmologist, Dr. Mowat, on some eye conditions in the red wolf population. And so she's, you know, she's actually really good. She started out as a large animal veterinarian. And so she's very comfortable working around animals that are not your typical pets. Right. A little bit more on the skittish and wary yes. side. Mm-hmm. Um, red, Okay. Red wolves have been bandied about lately as one of the hot topic conservationists. Uh, 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 loc- loci? Loci? Sure. Yeah, we'll use that word. Um, where I don't think anyone, everyone thinks of the gray wolf, you know, mm-hmm. the famous wolf wolf. Wolf wolf. Um, where, where, what's the red wolf's range? Where are they endemic to? I don't even, I literally don't know. I have no idea. Well, and, I've heard them, but that's about it. And, and that's, of course... It's a $64,000 question, and the, uh, what is it, the American Academy of Sciences convened uh, a study group to weigh in on even whether the red wolf is a specific species. I'm, I think it is, based upon everything I've seen. Uh-huh. And their historic range is essentially the southeastern United States, up into maybe Pennsylvania, New York. And so... They are distinct. If you were to put them next to a gray wolf, um, they're not a gray wolf. Some people say, well, they're coyotes or they've interbred with coyotes so much they're no longer a distinct species. And yet... I work with them both. I can tell them apart. They have distinct behavior patterns that... Well, also, coyotes are incredibly wide-ranging and incredibly adaptable to human environments. I mean, right. coyotes are on the rise. We all know that, right? Yes. Well, we don't all know that. If In case you don't know, <laughs> coyotes are on the rise. Coyotes are one of the few uh, large mammals that can... The human ecosystem is totally perfect for them. They're like, oh, this is great. I can hide during the day and eat trash at night, right? Right. No, it's, it's really interesting. You're right. They are on the rise. I mean, originally, their range was the Midwest. Really? Yes. Yeah, so they didn't range as far 
either west, like to California, or here east to North They're Carolina. They're literally everywhere now. Right. What and, a success. Well, it, it depends. For the coyote. For the coyote. Uh, but it's because other predators, such as the gray wolf, which would have been more north of them and west, and say the red wolf, uh-huh. uh, would have competed with them, and everybody would kind of keep to their own neck of the woods, so right, to speak. Right, 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 right. And once you pull out other apical predators like gray wolves or red wolves, then the coyotes were free to, to expand their to range. To exploit that vacuum. Right. And, and we've created great habitat for them. Yeah. Just and, like we did with the deer. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. I'm, from, I'm from suburban New York, so don't... Everyone's like, oh, the deer is so beautiful. I'm like, they are not. <laughs> they are not. I do not like the deer. No one likes the deer. Uh, we, so back to the red wolf uh, and this... And this I, I'm, I'm fascinated on how scientists convene to be like, what is this? So it's, it's, its range is m- roughly endemic to... Sounds like the Ap- Appalachians. No, it actually went down into Texas, Louisiana... All through the southern oh, part of okay. the U.S. So it, it ha- historically had, let's say, the southeast up along the Atlantic coast. How far north it went is debatable. Some people say Pennsylvania. Others say New York. Oh, so it was a coastal animal. Or it, can, or, it, or it can, it can it's, it's very varied. It's very varied. Yeah. It's, it, can, it can do okay on the coast, but I think its home range historically was probably all throughout the southeast. It's right. kind of interesting when you read records. What do we call that? The Piedmont. Well, mm. we're in the Piedmont, but uh, right now, this part of North Carolina. We are in uh, we are at NC State University right, right now, just for your reference. But there's a... God, we're going to get off into geography. I mean, if you go from the coast of North Carolina <laughs> to the Appalachian Mountains, we like to say we have all sorts of geographic uh, ranges. Same thing would be true with Tennessee. I'm just trying to niche it into a belt, but maybe it's it's much more versatile of an animal than that. They are very adaptable, given given the proper environment. They're much more secretive. They're not as adaptive as coyotes. Right. So they would prefer not to be around people. Right. And just, you know, leave me alone. I need my, my home range. I need something to eat. Um, and, and I'm fine. That's, uh, so, so what are these behavioral qualities that, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> we started off that we're going to talk about something else, but I don't know <laughs> this one, you seem to really dig it. And two, I think it's really fascinating that there's this, there's this niche animal that, survives among us that still needs to be cared for where is it on the um on the endangered oh it's highly endangered highly endangered how large is the population or are we trying to figure that out no i mean we we talked before about politics Uh this is a highly political um situation and i'll put my foot in my mouth, I'm sure, mm-hmm. uh, on the politics. Uh, part of it, I look at it as states' rights because it's on the endangered list. It's a federally protected animal. And so people in the state wildlife commission have a different viewpoint than federal. Mm-hmm. And same thing happened with the Florida panther in Florida decades ago. Anytime you get... The state is at the forefront of this. Well, it's it's states' rights versus federal rights. Right. And the federal government coming in and telling landholders, yes, you can't, you know, destroy these animals unless you have proof of depredation. In other words, they're taking out livestock. Right. But 
they do at night look so much like coyotes. People say, well, I thought it was a coyote. Mm, and coyotes are really, really not endangered. No, not at <laughs> not all. Not at all. And so we probably, I honestly don't know. I mean, we were up well over 100, 150 animals here in North Carolina, which were released. In other words, they were extirpated from the wild. Uh And so we have a captive population that's managed through the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. That's the the body that overlooks um, zoos and accredits zoos. And, And so many different zoos and parks breed red wolves right. as part of a captive population that could be returned to the wild. That's how it started. In right. other words, all the wild ones were brought in. And at that time, we didn't have all the great genetics that we do now. So they based it on on what does a red wolf look like? And they did it based upon historical skulls, pelts, and things like that. Yep to come up with a breeding population that they could say are truly red wolves. Right. And that they haven't interbred with coyotes. And that's sort of the crux of, of a lot of the arguments, well, that but they really there's too much coyote in them. Um, but they're different. If, well, you, if you work with them both, you know they are different animals in how they use their habitat, how they interact with people, and just their success rate. We're of European descent. We have one to two per percent Neanderthal in us right now, but there's no mistaking us. We're definitely Homo sapiens sapien, right? Right. Like so, I, I that makes perfect sense to me. Like, okay, yeah, it's got some coyote in it, but that's clearly one hundred percent not a coyote. Right. We are clearly one hundred percent not a Neanderthal. Correct. Some of us are mostly. Men, but no, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> oh, I am. I'm hashtag me too all the way. <laughs> uh, okay, let's not actually. Let's really stay away from that one. Please, let's do that. <laughs> um, so, so okay. Here's an ethical. Not an. Is it ethical or is it a scientific question? Is that truly a real species? If we have if we have selectively bred it in captivity with the prime the pump to re-release into hopefully a sustainable wild environment that can't happen quite yet because we haven't figured out what that balance is, is what? Oh, I don't, I don't, I didn't ask a question, but I did. No, you did ask the question. And that is, that really is the $64,000 question. Right. In other words, and it's ethical, it's moral, um, do we want to save these animals? Yes. The answer is yes. That yes. is true. And if you want to save the animals, do you want to restore them to their native range? And that's where it gets a little dicey. Right. Because some people have an innate fear of any carnivore. I mean, some people are scared of dogs. But when you say wolf, it's just wolves have, they've had bad press. Uh, I, I, I mean, <laughs> Aesop, the Grimm brothers, right. <laughs> literally humanity is like, don't go into the, don't go into the forest. Right, right. The forest has the wolves. And, and you were talking about our European progenitors before, um, the, the English came to North America, mm-hmm. they had totally eliminated wolves from the British Isles. They yes. were very good. Yes. Yeah. And they 
went about doing the same thing once they started colonies uh, along um, the, the 13 original right, colonies. Right, 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 right. I mean, yeah, because the wolf is the first thing that, I mean, it's, it's the apex predator of this ecosystem. So bye-bye sheep. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it, it's interesting. I mean, and that's what we're dealing with with coyotes and depredation of backyard chicken flocks. I'm not dealing with that, but people who have chickens are upset because coyotes are coming in and taking out their chickens. I think there's enough chickens. <laughs> well, well, the trouble, and it's not a trouble. People that have backyard flocks sometimes they name their chickens, so you're you're getting into this human animal bond situation. Mm-hmm. That yes, these chickens are producing eggs for me and my family to but eat. But this time it's personal. It is personal. This is, you know, Henrietta yeah. or Sarah or whatever they've named the chicken <laughs> that's been removed. And and so we call it adaptive pest management. If you go in and you remove coyotes, other coyotes are gonna come in and fill that void because they're very successful and they'll just they'll have more pups. Yep. And they'll fill the space again. And so it's, it's like, how are you going to live with them? Because you're not going to eliminate them. So in, uh, in a per, not in a perverse way, but in like a measurable way, the reintroduction of the wolf would mitigate the coyote impact, wouldn't it? The preliminary, when they were doing the reintroduction, they certainly will hold their own territory, the red wolves, as long as they're not disrupted, and they will push coyotes back. Right. So it's like World War Z right now, and the right. coyotes are the zombies. They're, right. They're, I mean, because, again, I've seen documentary upon documentary on, on coyotes and just how they just thrive in urban, in, in urban environments specifically, right? And we are largely an urban country now, despite exactly. what we say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I forgot what the exact ratio is, but it's 89% of the Americans live in what could be classified as urban. Right. And the coyotes are just going along in tow with that. They're, right. they're following us. We create waste. They sn- snoop it up. Right. Snoop it up. Do they snoop it up? Yeah. They, they s- snarf it up. They snarf it up. Um, <laughs> and, and, and of course, if you let your little dog out at night yeah. without going out with him, you just yep. put him in the backyard. Yep. Because coyotes are what we call crepuscular. So they're more active uh, at dawn and dusk, mm-hmm. but they're certainly active at midnight. Right. And, um, or you let your cat out. Coyote is going to take advantage of that. It, it can if there's coyotes in the neighborhood, right? And, and that makes also it gives a coyote a bad rep, right? So wait, so we're sort of fleshing this out as our urban and th- maybe we don't have to mess with the coyotes because as we become thoroughly urbanized, now this return to the original range of these more wild, let's call them more wild or less human interactive species. We're we're leaving a vacuum because we are not live. We're not living out there on the frontier anymore. <laughs> the per, there is still person raising Henrietta and little Sarah sure. hens mm-hmm. living in the mountains, but most people are fleeing those areas. So the reintroduction we're reintroducing these wolves and stuff into areas where people aren't living as prevalently or as hard as they used to. Correct. Right. But people still own that land. People and, do still own that and land. And people have. 
their own opinions about the value of having these wolves right. on their property. And it differs neighbor to neighbor. And it does differ neighbor from neighbor. Because I can, I can just picture that where neighbor X is more of an environmental bent and be like, they can live and learn. I'll fence my dog in and that'll be fine and we'll all coexist. Exist, right. And then the others will be like, well, I've got goats and sheep. What are you going to do about or, that? Or um, people say they, they take the deer down and I don't, I can't shoot or kill as many deer. Oh no, you got enough deer. <laughs> we know you got enough deer. You literally have enough deer. <laughs> you, do you realize that at the turn of the, of the last century, so right. around 1900, yep. um, we didn't have deer in North Carolina. Deer, there were maybe an estimated... I think it's 30,000 white-tailed deer were estimated left in the entire U.S. What? And so there were government programs to create the forest lands yep. and then to translocate white-tailed deer. And this started in the 50s here in North Carolina. It may have been the late 40s. I'm a little... I haven't given this lecture in a while. Yeah. Uh, but up until the 70s, they were translocating deer to create um, a population that people could hunt, that the sportsmen could hunt. <laughs> we don't, I don't think there's enough people in America to hunt the deer out. Well, and, and it's interesting because, again, there is, and again, I'm, I'm kind of treading into territory that I don't claim to be an expert in, but my understanding is, is that the number of hunting license, the number of people that are actually hunting is decreasing, at least in this state. I don't know what it is through the U.S. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have, you know, people out there actively harvesting, then what? The, the population's going to fluctuate. Yeah. I mean, some, some of the reasons that hunters don't see deer or can't get deer at a particular year is we might have a disease that comes through and, and takes the number down. And that's how wild populations work. Right. Because disease will cycle through and then they'll rebound. And, and that's good. But, yeah, we've created perfect habitat for deer because North Carolina didn't look like this when the settlers first came. I mean, that buildings aside, we're talking about right. we had prairie here, yep. we had very large mature forest, and by clearing this and building all these subdivisions and creating greenways, right. they love edge habitat. Yes, yeah, yeah. The 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 huge the huge, you know, ancestral forest with the giant uh, no no undergrowth and giant that's not the deer. No, the it's deer not. like scrub brush and they like hiding and they like nestling and they like hiding in thorns and briars and blah 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 and they like eating delicate little saplings, you yeah, know? Right. And and but we created that environment for them. And they are, they're what I call generalists, just like the coyotes. Yeah. They can survive. The raccoons will survive. The fox can survive. Right. So I grew up on a 5,000-acre nature preserve right. just north of New York City called the Pound Ridge Reservation. And uh, as my dad was an employee of that park, and as, uh, as right about when he's about to retire, he tried to institute a bow hunting program. There had never been a boat bow hunting. Mm -hmm. Me and my brothers were so anti-hunting. <laughs> if we found a tree stand 
in the forest, right. we'd, we'd climb it and we'd take it down. And you'd have these hunters come up and knock on our front door and be like, we know your boys took our tree stand. We're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And eventually my dad will be like, give it back to them. They were hunting illegally on county land, but just give it back to them. I warned them because my dad was also the ranger, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Adult me is like, Oh no, shoot those sons of bitches. Get out. I mean, with no, no, in a controlled atmosphere, atmosphere. from a tree stand with a bow where it's skillful hunting, where it's someone who's going to appreciate it. I'm not saying go out there with a machine gun and call the herd of deer, but that is, that's the kind of hunter that you want operating on your land. The responsible, artful hunter who, when he gets that. He's going to be appreciative of the animal. He's going to use every part. He's probably going to sell the venison to his local purveyors and stuff like that. You know, Um, at at least that's how it operates in suburban New York when the people are hunting. And and I I totally agree with you. And I I think people that are anti-hunting don't appreciate that hunters are our best conservationist. Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Teddy Roosevelt's like, we got to save land. Why? So I can kill things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I mean, he didn't actually say that. He, he might have actually said that. I, I, I'm not aware that he said it, but I, I, he had a, a great appreciation. Yes. For yes. No, hunters are great nature. ecologists. Right. Yes. They 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 know a lot. They know a lot about the ones I work with. They know mm-hmm. a lot about the animals that they're hunting. Yep. Uh, they respect the animals. Yep. I think that's anybody that works with wildlife, like your family did growing up. Yep. We have a lot of respect for the animals. Yeah. We understand their role in their environment, and everybody has a part to play. And it's only when we come in and, you know, change the landscape, change the rules, that animals are either going to adapt or they're going to die out. Right. And the red wolves died out with a lot of help, but the coyotes... They did well in the Midwest, and then they just expanded out to fill a void. Yeah, and 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 you just listed the other animals that have done that. Again, this is well, actually, is this? I mean, it's pretty much nationwide. Raccoons mm-hmm. everywhere. White-tailed deer, at least on the eastern seaboard, yeah. everywhere up and down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got other species of deer in the Midwest and, right. and blacktail. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I don't know what they have on the West Coast. Well, black-tailed deer, I think. Yeah, and then you got what? Where, where are the mule deer? They're out west. They're out west also. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but pretty much the whole, let's call it the northeast, which is the forested area, basically, mm-hmm. from Wisconsin, Minnesota over is white-tailed deer central. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, hey, good on the white-tailed deer. Bad on us for, I don't know. Oh, it's so, God, I don't know. I don't know. Ah. It's, I, it's so morally gray. It's like, oh, God, they're a successful <laughs> species and we helped them. But it's rabbits. It's rabbits in Australia. Well, no. They they, they should, introduced no, the rabbits. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. They shouldn't have been yeah. there in the Was first place. Mix, mixomatosis? Yes. Mixomatosis. Right. It, I only know that because it's a Radiohead song. Um, <laughs> also, I remember things. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> or, ooh, 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 ooh. Do you know anything about the Great Emu War? No. <laughs> oh, I was, hope, I was hoping you did. Apparently, the emu went crazy in Australia, so they actually sent out like Australian soldiers with machine guns to fight the emus. Uh, <laughs> the emus uh, eventually lost, but it took, it took way too long. Um, okay, fun hour. We just, keep, <laughs> we just keep bouncing all over the place, but that's what I find incredibly fascinating. I hope everyone else finds it really fascinating, too, because we're talking about all these species uh, in our backyards. Right. 
but you're not just our backyard, are you? You go a little, you wide, you range a little bit further afield too. What are some of the crazy <laughs> to us animals? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. ...that you deal with. I... <laughs> Exotic, maybe, is the word we're looking for? Oh, I don't like that word. I, well, I can't, well, how do I describe it? Non-North American. Non- how about that? Non-native. Okay. Non-native populations. <laughs> what non-native populations do you deal with that completely fascinate you? Because we're talking about things that we can walk outside and hopefully right. look, and maybe someday we'll get to see a red wolf in our backyard and be like, wow, that's amazing. But uh, Most people wouldn't think so. I would. I I'd know like, you would, but like, I, I, I do think... One of the things that we have to work on is educating the public because that communication piece right. about what people think and what they've grown up with right. and what's really real. And I'm, I'm going to get us back to what we were going to talk about. Oh, yeah. What were we talking about? Science. Oh, yes. Yeah, science. Scientists communicating. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So Science is politics. It is. Politics is persuasion. Yeah. And so when you have humans and wildlife conflicts, how do you resolve them? And wildlife biologists haven't been trained in this. I mean, they've been trained as biologists. Veterinarians haven't been trained in this. We've trained in medicine. Right. And if you do research, and you were talking about weird animals in another lifetime, I did work with... African lions in Africa, yep. and I was looking at the impact of a virus, feline immunodeficiency virus, which acts like human immunodeficiency virus, and what the impact was on the immune system of the lions. I thought that only affected our domestic cat population. It it hopped? No, it's probably been in uh, the African lions for a long, long time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and there's different clades of feline immunodeficiency virus. And it's, it's, it can impact domestic cats, and it has even impacted lions, at least the ones we can see in captivity. Mm-hmm. They'll develop clinical signs compatible with acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. But it's not common in lions, so a lot of people thought it's not a problem in lions. Right. But it does affect their T-cell subpopulations, those same. lymphocytes, just like Exactly the same way, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's kind of like their lifespan isn't as long as people. And so they're going to be able to reproduce. 
So it's not like you see an immediate impact on the population. Right. Because it's, yeah, because it's, it, it's only existing inside this, the, the, the subject for such a short time that it doesn't have the time to manifest it in the way it does with a human where you can see it. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's the, the short of it. And, yeah. But there may be subtle things that we don't recognize. Maybe they don't, they don't hunt as well mm-hmm. because it is a virus that can affect the brain. Mm-hmm. And so we do see in captive lions, luckily we've managed to, to rid ourselves of this in the captive population just by keeping those animals isolated and letting them live out a normal lifespan and not putting negative animals in with positive animals. Right, 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 right. So it's it's not a big issue anymore. So I consider that a, a, a great success that let's just keep the population separate. Now, you just very concisely explained what could be a heady and high caliber argument <laughs> because... Now I'm bringing you back on track. Thank you. To communication. Right. Scientists... I've interviewed some scientists who get it. I've interviewed some scientists who are acronym P soup. Yes. And they assume that their audience is of the same heady level of intelligence and academe and schooling that they are. You have taken a different approach. You're getting the scientists back boots on the ground where they can talk to the common man. Right. I, I think that... I think you're doing it. But, uh, uh, I hope so. But, what's uh, your, but how? Well, I've gotten interested in improv right now. Yes. And uh, <laughs> we just did it. You did it. We finally got we to what, we finally got to what we were going to talk about. Who's Im- improv? <laughs> improv is not just for comics. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz that's what I thought. And and it's like improv, that's what comics do. Right. And then I haven't done it very much, but there are rules. It's not like it's just all spontaneous. Um, and, and so once I started doing it and realizing that there were some ground rules, but the whole thing is to break down barriers of communication and really self-consciousness. Right. I think, I'll give you a great example. We, we have a cider pressing at our place, and I thought some of the people that were coming, they, we have a bar, and they said, let's do a square dance. So I hired a square dance caller and everything, but nobody would do it because they didn't... They said, well, I don't know how. Even though the square dance caller and his wife were doing demonstrations and everything, it's like really, really educated people don't like appearing maybe out of foolish. Their el- yeah. Out of their element. Out of their element. Yeah. And, and, and can you just throw it all away and go for it? That's what the liquor's for. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, and see, I don't agree with that because I, I come... The Kennedy Irish, lots of alcoholics oh, in yeah. the family. So I don't drink. I'm gonna I'm gonna stay away from that one. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. Not, let's not go there. But I don't drink, and and so for me, alcohol's never been uh, a way to, you know, let go. It really has to be from within right. that you want to explore different avenues, and that you're not afraid to look silly sometimes, or. Or admit that you don't know something. Right. And that's really hard, I think, sometimes for anybody that is a teacher or is really, really, you know, focused on a research question and is highly respected to just say, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And that's okay. I think that's 
what everyone should be doing. Yeah. I mean, isn't, isn't that science? Science is the, I science is never, I know science is always, I don't know. I mean, that's literally what science is. I don't know. Let's find out. Yes. It's problem solving. Yeah. And admittedly, the problems are very complex these days. We're asking more and more of ourselves. So we're having to work across disciplines to solve some of these really serious problems facing. And okay. Do you know what One Health is? I'm going to kind of... One Health? Yeah, what's One Health? If I said One Health to you, what would you think? I'd think it was a provider that... I'd think it was a medical provider. Okay, I love that. I'd think it was, yeah, i think it was some sort of HMO. Okay, it's, it is a... It's an interdisciplinary approach to solve complex problems at the interface between people, animals, and the environment. Okay. So it really, depending upon what the problem is, whether it's an emerging disease, whether you've got drought conditions, Mm -hmm. who are you going to have sitting around a table talking so you can solve this problem? Right. And sometimes it's the politicians. Right. And that's not always a good thing. But if you can get people that are willing to listen and try to share their expertise and, and not be so wrapped up, invested in their own, well, this is the best way. This is the way to solve it. Yeah. Because sometimes what I do is not the best approach. And I have to be willing to sit and listen to maybe an engineer or somebody in hydrology to, to solve a situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know anything about engineering or hydrology, but I can listen, I consider myself fairly intelligent, and I can communicate back and forth at a level or make them communicate at a level that everybody sitting at the table understands what the possibilities are. Right. Because if we can't do this, right, we're not going to solve a lot of our problems. Right. And, and also part of the onus is on the hydrologist and the engineer right. to be able to convey their their facts right. or their opinions or their their science to you who that is not your science right. so you can't start talking in all your hardcore science i can't start talking in all my hardcore science but we are all scientists right. and even if we're not even the politician sitting at the table uh, can be like oh well I know the human capital aspect of it. I know the land use rights. I know this sort of law uh, about it. So bingo, economics is always a factor. Right, it's always about money. In the at the end of the day, yeah, it is. What's the capital? Yeah, what's it going to cost? And how are you going to evaluate whether you're being effective? Right. Yeah. No, I remember. uh, uh, Wow. It all. We got we got some Hakuna Matata circle of life going on right now. Uh, well, no, Hakuna Matata was means no worries. Circle yeah. of life is the beginning. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, the reintroduction of uh, the wolf to Yellowstone, right. and all of a sudden, all the river ecologies changed. Yeah, because it was I think it was the mule deer again. Right. They were eroding all the riverbanks, and all the fisheries were dying, and the rivers were cutting straight through because they wouldn't turn around right. like they usually yeah. do mm-hmm. um oxbow bends and stuff like that yeah. and all of a sudden there's now brush and the brush creates shade and the shade allows the fish and then the rivers take a more meandering course and then that brings the bears and ah <laughs> just because we brought the wolf in and it killed the deer right right 
And that guess what that brought? The tourism. Because now Yellowstone is more blah 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 blah. And right. now you got the money. And then yeah. blah, blah, blah. and yeah. And and see, I look at the the Yellowstone ecosystem from a disease standpoint, but that's okay. Right. Because I'm looking at at Brucella and are thinking of Brucella and the bison and what the problem is with that. And that's what the cattlemen don't want the bison going over onto their property. Because their fear it'll bring a bison endemic disease. Right. Uh-huh. But the elk also have it. So there's all sorts of problems. But the elk, the elk can go wherever they want. Exactly. The bison are the ones who are stuck. Uh, so there we go. There's a perception thing. There is a perception thing. and and But it's also what's the relative risk that how we manage the, the elk or how we manage the bison in this ecosystem, the Yellowstone ecosystem, right. which is a fabulous, complex place. Yeah. You've got highways for everything now, right? Yeah. The, high, the greenways but, over... But, yeah. but the cattlemen, I mean, the people that surround it, and again, this is this human-wildlife interface, yeah. they only see what the potential problems are. Right. So you've got to be able to... And it's tough. I can't tell them what the relative risks are. I mean because I'm not doing that research. Right. Other people are looking Who at it. Who have those vested interests, though. Well, no, not necessarily. No? No, I, I think people genuinely want to understand what's going on, or at least maybe I have kind of a Pollyanna viewpoint of everything. I always think the best of everybody. The best of all possible worlds. Yeah, well, Dr. Pangloss and the, Candide. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. I got them mixed up. Yeah. Yes, uh, Pollyanna yeah. is the, the glad game. The glad game, And yes, yes Dr. Pangloss is the best <laughs> of all, all possible, possible worlds. worlds. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah, uh, I'm often disappointed because at, at the end of the day, people are sort of self-serving. Right. Because, and when you look at the history of our country or any civilization, it's, it's, it's pretty pragmatic. It's about what my needs are. Yeah. And what, you know, people are beginning to wonder is, what, what is it going to be like when I'm no longer here? What am I leaving behind? Oh, that's a, and that's the hard one because yeah. who cares? <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, no, no, but I'm but not. A lot of people don't yeah. because it's all about the here and now. Yeah. And the here and now for, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. It is pretty nice. Yeah, got 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 the cars and got the uh, got the electronics. Where with the rare earth? What's yeah. where that comes from? Yeah, you know where's that comes from? And, so and, what was that? And so when you start thinking about all these things, I mean, you could just end up in a crawl, crawl into a hole and going, I can't deal with this. Right, right. And, and the <laughs> students asked me that, and I said, pick one thing that really, really matters to you. Yep. And try to work on that. You can't do everything. Because it will drive you nuts, and you won't be successful. But also go out there and be able to articulate it, right? Right. Because don't get so you you have to take a holistic outlook too. Right. You're not just you're not just a scientist anymore. Because when you're a scientist, you're also a coworker. You're also an employee. You're also a politician because you got to get the money to do the science. You're a grant writer. Like these are all, all of this is under the umbrella of scientists, right? right? So like you've got to be a well-rounded person. You've got to be a liberal arts person to be a scientist, you know? It helps. Yeah. And, and what would be really, I mean, ultimately what I, you know, people say, well, what, what do you think the answer is? And I think we should be reaching out to five and six-year-olds. If a scientist, if I can communicate 
with a five or six or seven year old before they've kind of molded their mind and they don't ask questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have kids, but I love being at the Museum of Natural Sciences when I did this and getting groups of young kids. Yep. They ask the best questions because they have no filters. Right. And they ask questions I haven't even thought to ask. And those are really the the people I want to be able to reach are those small children who are looking at the world and discovering it in their own eyes and trying to help them to be able to answer the questions of the future. Right. But they're really difficult. You can't talk to them like they know all the big, long words. No. So you really have to be able to distill it down so a four- or five-year-old or six-year-old can understand it. But I'm always surprised. I think we don't give them enough credit. They understand more than we think they do. Right. They really do. I wish we could say about some about some other people. <laughs> um, no, so yeah, that's I. I really like that that uh, distillation. You know, give give it to me. Don't give it to me in a soundbite. Engage with me, but still, it's got to be palatable. I don't right. want you feeding me this bland meal. You've got to have, you know, the bland meal would be all the alphabet soups and the acronyms and the right. blah, 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 Latin Latin cognates and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and and improv, yeah, improv is not stand up. It's totally different. And I could see how improv could really help you. Well, it. I did an exercise, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, where it was towards the end, and it was with graduate students, and they all knew what we were doing research on. And so you would go up to the front of the room and turn your back and put your hands over your ear, and then everybody else would decide who your partner was going to be, Mm -hmm. whether it was going to be a prospective graduate student or the media or a small child wanting to know what you do. And then you turn around and all of a sudden there's this person acting, pretending yep. to be whatever it is, yep. and you have to adjust accordingly yeah. to your audience of one. Right. It's a great exercise. I know. I, it's totally cool because you know, you're going to put on a different hat if you're talking to a colleague, right? but you're going to put on a different hat if you're talking to a scientist of a different field. Exactly. You're still going to talk science. Just not so much science, you know, <laughs> and then and then there's there's different grades, you know, right? Um, and I think that is important because like science is really cool, but you know you got the trope like, what do you know, Mister Scientist? What do you know, Madam Scientist? I'm like, well, actually, that's literally what they know. They're a scientist. <laughs> they're, they're they're well. I I I think people, for whatever reason, and I'm sure you've read some people. We're wrong sometimes. Scientists can be wrong. Science is, you're supposed to be wrong. You want to be wrong. Well, I don't think we allow people to make mistakes anymore. I see that in our students. Well, that's because where's the money coming from? But but it's still science. But it's still, I mean, you have to feel like you can make a mistake. But everybody feels if if they make a mistake, they're a failure. If they don't go down the right path. And admittedly, funding's tough. So right. if you go down the wrong path, you're going to lose your funding pretty fast. Yeah, neg- negative outcomes do not fund things. No. I've been told by another scientist. Yes, they do they're, not. They're good science, but they do not fund things. Exactly. But yet, particularly for young people coming along, they need to be able to feel like they can try things, ask questions, and maybe fail. 
Don't and we feel that change is happening? I, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Not in, in our students, but it, it's, maybe it's you know, younger students that I'm not encountering. But I think, and it may be that when you're in a medical field, because the consequences if you make a mistake... Yeah. Okay. Something could die. Yeah. And and so therefore, don't want to do that, and we don't want to do that. But as they learn, they're going to make mistakes, and it doesn't mean they're failures. Right. Right. I I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think I think that I I'm not a scientist, uh, but I I'm a fan of science, and I read science books, and I watch science documentaries, and my the pioneer eras of science. The sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, and nineteenth centuries just was wrong all the time. Everything was wrong. Phlogiston, wrong, <laughs> you know. But without phlogiston, you wouldn't go and start trying to find oxygen, you know. Right. Uh, like they're like, oh, well, the phlogiston puts out the fire, or did it start the fire? Whatever it was, one of them. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Someone look up phlogiston. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's pretty funny now, but I think in the future we're going to look at some of our science and be like, that was pretty funny. funny. Or you know, what were they thinking? Right. That's sometimes when I, you know. Go Go back and look at the history. It is interesting to look at history. I love history too, yeah. just to figure out what people did think, what they did do, and and how is that impacting us today? Ah, oh my God. Okay, uh, quick <laughs> favorite favorite non wolf animal. See, I, I do not have a favorite animal. Really? Well, I used to, but as I've gotten older. And I've worked with so many species. I have such tremendous admiration and respect for all of them. Then who's the biggest dick of the animal world? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, like, you're just like, really? You're, you're, just, you're, just, you're just like this all the time? Pure David Deer. The pure David Deer. What's that? <laughs> It was again. It was an animal that was rescued from near extinction. Yeah, and uh, we I, used to laugh and say that they had one neuron in the herd, and they would pass it around. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they so bad? Uh, I, they, they aren't bad. Uh, they're difficult to immobilize. Um, they we were they were being. Uh, um, don't Hell, worry, they're, a, they're, they're not listening. You no, don't they, have to fear were, about were, insulting them. <laughs> they were in a conservation area, and so during the rutting season, the males just, they will take over the herd of females, and they will fight any other male until, and they don't eat. So eventually they, they get beaten up because they're, they're not, they don't have enough energy. Uh-huh. So the next male takes over, and so it's this constant <laughs> fighting and, and as a veterinarian, I was, you know, having to try to catch these males and patch them up because they were just doing silly things over the females. What can I say? <laughs> uh, so uh, we should name them, rename them the, uh, we shouldn't rename them the uh, Daytona Beach Deer because that's what it sounds like. The Jersey Shore Deer. That's what they should be called. <laughs> hey, you step into my lady? No, you step into my lady? No, you step and then just then there's just one deer left. Be like, I win, bro. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of th- that strategy is used amongst other species. It's just that I just yeah remember the pure David deer, and we always said they have a, a single neuron between them. <laughs>
<laughs> oh my god! I, okay, I, I, where, where are they from? So I know where to stay away. Uh, originally in in southeast or China, primarily. Oh, so they're, they're ch- not they're not native to oh, North okay, America. Cool. So we don't have to. I don't have to worry about them messing no. <laughs> messing up my my fellow deer. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> where's the where the oh Father David? Yeah, that's where the name. It's Père David. Yes. Yeah, I got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard of that deer, and now I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to meet one of those. Deer. Oh, well, they, they, yeah. You can. I think. I don't know if San Diego still has them, but um, yeah, they're out there. Hey, I like to end all these on like at least an uplifting or maybe, by the way, this has been immensely uplifting because we <laughs> ca- talked about the intersection of science and policy and people and also how scientists want to try harder and you should listen to your local scientist uh, and then tell them to knock it off when they get down into the word salad. But um, <laughs> but yes. one, one thing that I guess, you know, the predominance of our listenership are in the United States um, with a secondary population in Poland. Hi, Poland, by the way. Hi, Krakow. You guys are listening a lot. Uh, where That's did that come from? Excellent. Can someone please tell me why everyone's listening in Poland now? But hey, Poland, love you. Um, and I'm sure there's wildlife in Poland too. But yes. I want you to. Yeah, I'm sure this, that was the dumbest thing I've ever said. Poland, I know you got wildlife. <laughs> um, would just this is one thing. My mom was a wildlife rehabilitator and veterinary technician. Just. Tell everyone what to do when you see a wild animal because it, it's there were so many the birds the mama bird will smell it and then they'll kick it out of the nest. No, if you can put it back in the nest, if assuming that you know it's not hurt and and the mother will come back, that's the best thing. I um, it, it depends upon what the animal is and where you are. I mean, let's take raccoons. They're everywhere. Raccoons. Yeah. They're cute. They have good press. Yeah. But here along our eastern seaboard, they are the reservoir for rabies. Mm -hmm. Now, they also are susceptible to canine distemper. So if they have canine distemper or rabies, they're going to present often neurological. So they're stumbling around. They may have runny eyes. They're not behaving normally. So I always tell people, if wild animals are approaching you, something's wrong. They're sick. And you shouldn't be interfacing with them because if it is something like rabies, and it could be a fox, it could be a bobcat. We We have bobcats right here where we are in Wake County, North Carolina. Nobody ever sees them. No, but you hear them late at night. Yeah. Yeah, they're so... I've, I've never seen one, but I hear them, like in the Adirondacks and the Catskills, yeah. and even in my backyard, occasionally you hear them. Yeah, and... And you won't forget it. And they're so good at... They're so secretive, yeah. and, and so people aren't aware that they're around, but if all of a sudden you see a bobcat and it's approaching you, you need to be very, very cautious, because... That's abnormal. Most yeah. of our wildlife wish to avoid us. Yeah. They love the fact that they can get in our garbage cans or that we set food out for the songbirds and they can get at it. Right. But for the most part, over the years, I kind of have a hands-off attitude yeah. about a wildlife. I mean, if somebody... We, we do have a great program for turtles at the vet school. So if a turtle is hit by a car or is run over by a lawnmower, or a dog gets a hold of it. Yep. 
people can bring it to the vet school and our vet students, the turtle team, take care of it. Yeah. Do you reconstruct shells? Yes. They yeah. do everything. Like with like carbon fiber and stuff? They, they, or they epoxies and polymers? We do we 3D, use, we, do we we 3D use, print? We have, I'm trying to think if we've done it for them. We've done it for others animals, wild animals. But now we use, instead of the epoxy because it delays uh-huh. healing, they use more screws and wires to, to put tension on the shell ah, and let it, and let it and fill in. And let it grow itself. Yeah. yeah. It, it will go faster. Oh, because oh, oh, I... It, it's, I get it. All right. So yeah, you, you're, you're just creating a clean space for right. it to grow back right. in again. Right. Because you'll see turtles in the wild and like they'll have a jagged corner of the shell where it cr- clearly regrew, right. which is amazing. Yeah, it is. But if you just put an epoxy in, it just ends it right there. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's... Well, hey, there's some science right there. Yeah. We thought X worked. It turned out Y worked better. The turtle's actually going to be better off if you let it heal itself right. rather than... Put the covering it up exactly. with the epoxy and things like that. So, I mean, that's medicine evolves. So, okay. So you could pick up turtles, except snapping turtles. Don't pick them up. <laughs> oh, wait. We, they, they do get snapping turtles. It's and rather I'll, amusing. But then don't mess with sea turtles because they're going to go lay and they're in a trance. But then, okay, so you know what? There is no hard and fast rule. <laughs> no, but I mean, we do have a sea turtle hospital on our coast. So entanglements, uh, you know, animals that wash shore, uh, coal stun sea turtles. That's a whole nother thing we haven't talked about. We've got, I've got colleagues working on coal stunning of our sea turtles. What is that? Well, we're trying to figure out, I mean, it's, it's when turtles don't leave to go out to sea in time and we have a cold snap and the water temperature gets colder uh-huh. suddenly uh-huh. and they're in a stupor. Yeah. So they're not, they're not swimming. They're not doing what they're supposed to be. So you can go and pick them up out of the water. You can pick them up off the beach. And oftentimes it's just a matter of warming them up, taking care of some electrolyte issues. And then they can be released, but you have to go out to the Gulf Stream. Where it's warm. Well, yeah, because right. if you put it's, them back in the cold water, they just... Right. And but, so you have a lot of that, particularly up in Cape Cod and, and even New York. Yeah. Right, because turtles have it in them to shut off during the cold. Right. But they don't degenerate, do they? They're like, they, don't, they don't have like cell loss and cell damage and stuff like that. Like, where aren't we trying to... Oh, my God, we're going down a different rabbit yeah, hole. And, we and, have to, I, <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to wind this up. And, and, and actually, my husband has graduate student working on this. And it's an interesting story. You know, what do they do? How do they cope with this? Okay, then, then this is the perfect <laughs> note to say, we're going to come back and we're going to talk with some turtle people. I think that would be wonderful. I want to do it. I want oh, to talk turtles. Oh, I'd love that. Oh, and I know the people that you should be talking to. Dr. KS, Dr. Suzanne Kenny Stoskoff, thank you so much for this. <laughs> My pleasure. Uh, just don't, don't touch the freaking wildlife. How about that? <laughs> it's been a fantastic afternoon. I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did. Bye-bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.